The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello. Today, it's Lake Baikal, Troubles and Solutions in the Sacred Sea. Lake Baikal, the deepest, oldest, and largest supply of fresh water in the world, holds powerful sway over the hearts and minds of Russians. It also drew former Living on Earth senior editor Peter Thompson on a journey around the world to visit its majestic shores. Peter's written about his experience there in his new book, Sacred Sea, A Journey to Lake Baikal. My guest today is Peter Thompson, environmental editor at the public radio program, The World. Hello, Peter. Hey, Rob. How you doing? I'm doing great. Um, you're not calling us from Russia right now, are you? <laughs> no, I'm calling you from Brighton, Massachusetts, the, the, the beautiful neighborhood of, uh, of Market Street and WGBH well, in Boston. I'm far away in Harvard Square, so if I wave hard enough, you might see me or something. Uh, tell us about Lake Baikal. Why is it so special? You convey very well in your book how the large lake looms in Russian imaginations and in their sense of place, and yet... Few see it, and yet, why does it? This lake means so much to the Russians. Well, it's it's an amazing place. I mean, it, it, we know now that it's it's the the deepest body of fresh water in the planet. It's the 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 largest volume of fresh water in the planet. It's got as much fresh water as all of the North American Great Lakes combined. Um, but of course, we weren't able to sort of do the math on it until very recently. But but the lake has had this incredible hold over the Russian imagination, really, since Russians first discovered it um, about 400 years ago. Of course, you know, local folks in the, in the region, uh, the Buryats and others knew about it long before then. But um, it, it, it has this almost mystical quality to it. Its water is incredibly clear, incredibly pure, and you can see down meters and meters and meters in it. And uh, it also has, has uh, incredible uh, weather, storms, and, and uh and these unique species that live no place else, um, a, a freshwater seal, for instance, the world's only distinct species of freshwater seal, lots of weird kinds of fish. Um, and so Russians have always sort of felt like it's a, it's a place that stands apart and is almost magical and, and, and has this almost sort of supernatural quality to it. And uh, in, in, in recent years, um, that perhaps has been seen as being even more powerful because there has been... Uh, sort of the hand of man has started to, to, to make itself shown in the lake. There's been increasing amounts of pollution in the lake uh, going back uh, at least 50 years, if not before. Um, and yet when you, when you test the water just about any place, uh, you don't see any sign of it. And so Russians have felt like it's, 
it's almost sort of magical, like pollution goes into the lake and it, and it disappears. And that just sort of plays into this, this larger sense of this mythic, almost, you know, super, supernatural place. Well, really, what your description in your book of riding a train in and suddenly all the Russians are running to the windows with hoisting vodka and breaking into song when they see the lake. This is not what Americans do when we come to Lake Superior. Uh, heavens no, <laughs> not, not even to, to just about any other place. I mean, that was, that was you know, I, I had gone there um, sort of on a, a personal pilgrimage in a way. I was traveling around the world with my brother, and Baikal was sort of the, the apogee of that trip. It was the place that we were heading for. Um, but, and I knew that, that Baikal was considered a special place by, by Russians, but I, it didn't really hit me until that moment when, you know, I was standing at the window of the Trans-Siberian Railroad train um, from Vladivostok, three and a half days uh, away from the Pacific Ocean, and then all of a sudden, all these folks who had been pretty much holed up in their compartments the whole rest of the trip were suddenly out in the hallway singing and, and, and toasting, and it was this extremely emotional moment. Um, and and it really hit me at that moment that this is a place that that uh, there's no real um, corollary for in the United States, in my experience um, here at home, and a place that holds the kind of almost almost spiritual um, place in people's lives. And in Russia, uh, the spiritual and the uh, nationalistic are are extremely tightly woven, and and so it's yes. a place that in some ways sort of represents Russia itself. Well, your book is wonderful to read. It reminded me of uh, William Beebe describing going underwater for the first time in a bathysphere, what it's like to be under there. And you have a great passage where you t- take us under the waves. Uh, it's Chapter 5, and but could you read us a few paragraphs from that? Yeah, sure, sure, I'd be happy to. And, and it's, it, it, it should be noted that I, I wrote this, the book was published in 2007, and I wrote this passage in around 2004, 2005, and at that point, nobody had actually ever taken a dive to the bottom of Lake Baikal. Um, so this was entirely imagined. It's the one part of the book that's completely made up, although it's, it's, it's also completely factual. I mean, it's based on, on, on research and interviews about what one might see and find if they do go down into the lake, but no one had ever actually done it. Um, so I imagined what it would be like. Um, since then, people have, actually, starting about two years ago, um, People have gone down in, in, in small submersibles, including Russian President Vladimir Putin. Who, uh, wow, that's great. Take uh, us down. So um, he, he took away a very different message from that trip than, than others might, and we could talk about that later. But anyway, so this was imagining something that no one had yet done, although they now have since done that. Um, this is a chapter called Into the, Into the Lake Deep, um, during which in a restless night after a swim in the lake, we imagine a trip to the bottom of Baikal and other preposterous things. Um, I lead off each chapter with a little a little uh, epigraph like that. So um, it begins, dress warmly, hold your breath, and take a dive. You pierce the surface of Baikal at a soft angle and slip like the low rays of the high-latitude sun into a prism of liquid glass. The water molecules release their bonds with each other to embrace you. Sunlight follows you, wiggles and scatters. The photons themselves become liquid. Sound becomes a liquid, too, thick and syrupy. Gravity loses its bearings and presses at you from all around. Normal reference points fall away, up and down, left and right. Your sense of where you are comes only from subtle changes in light, temperature, and pressure. This will take some getting used to. But not to worry, here in the world's oldest lake, still in its youth at 25 million years, you've got nothing but time. And if you put your special magnifying goggles on, you'll see that you've got plenty of company as well. 
you're surrounded by a haze of tiny creatures, each no longer than a millimeter and a half. They're Epichura bicolensis, those elfin shrimp that float throughout the lake, sucking massive bicol through their little digestive tracts, feeding on algae and bacteria, pulling out impurities, and helping to keep the lake clean and clear. Epichura bicolensis are members of a group of organisms known as zooplankton, tiny animals and larvae that drift and swim through the water, buffeted about by waves and currents. The minuscule creatures that make up zooplankton live everywhere in just about every body of water on Earth. And like Epichura bicolensis, many of them are little shrimp or copepods. But Epichura bicolensis live nowhere else and apparently can't live anywhere else. It's said that they can't live even in a glass of bicol water removed from the lake. Perhaps they die of homesickness. The water surrounding you as you float in bicol is about as close as you can get in nature to pure H2O. It's what aquatic scientists call oligotrophic. There's very little in the way of nutrients and minerals running off into it from the surrounding landscape, and so a very limited supply of some of the basic building blocks of life. Bicol's epichura are exquisitely adapted to the unique chemistry of their home, and some scientists believe that's what, that makes them highly sensitive to subtle changes in the water as well. Mess with it by adding even small amounts of contaminants, even natural substances like nitrogen and phosphorus, and you could make life very difficult for these little guys, which would in turn make it difficult for just about everything else that lives in the lake. The epichura are what scientists call a keystone species, one that plays a large role in an ecosystem compared to its relative biomass. Their filter feeding helps keep the water clean and clear for other creatures, and they're also a key link in the food chain. Bicol zooplankton is a major source of food, food for fish and other higher animals, and the epichura constitute as much as 90% of the zooplankton. So that's the beginning of a journey down through the first few meters of the lake, and eventually I go down through about 1,600 meters down more than a, a mile to the bottom of the lake um, and, and uh, explore the geology and the hydrology and, uh, and the rest of, of, of the life in the lake. Um, it's a long chapter, so I'll leave it at that. It's a fascinating chapter, and um, it's fascinating how that they have oxygen down, dissolved oxygen way down deep, and yet it doesn't make sense with the lake turning over, and so you find a way to solve that mystery of, there must be a sufficient salts in the river water to make it sink, and it's just yeah. That was a really tough part of, of of the book to research, and I, that was some of the last stuff that I nailed down. And really, frankly, scientists still haven't nailed it down. And that is one of the amazing things about this lake is that there's oxygen all the way down at the bottom, far deeper than any other body of fresh water. And so there's life all the way down at the bottom of the lake as well. And nobody quite knows exactly how that works. And there there. Numerous theories, including, as you said, uh, the way that the salts and the density of the water coming out of out of the the, uh, the rivers flowing into the lake may affect things. But uh, it's it's still a mystery, and this place still holds holds endless numbers of mysteries. It's also a fabulous, you know, uh, fascinating uh, food chain. So, so what eats these little curas? Uh, uh, sure. Well, um, sure. Yeah. Uh, larvae of fish eat them, um, and then those larvae of fish get eaten by other things, and, 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 and in some cases other crustaceans eat them. I mean, there are larger crustaceans that are not, um, that are not uh, zooplankton. They're, they're, I think they call them benthic organisms. They, they, they rest on the bottom. Yeah. And, um, and so the, you know... The, well, tell us about the golemancas or whatever they're called. Go, Golemyanka. Golemyanka, yeah. Golemyanka, yeah. It sounds like out of, the tri- out of the Lord of the Rings or something. Well, it, it, it kind of almost looks like like something out of out of a science fiction book or a science fantasy book. Um, 
they're they're almost clear. Um, there are fish. They're about you know eight to twelve inches long. There's there's two there's two subspecies in the lake, and one's about eight, and one's about twelve inches long. They have no scales. Um, they are highly fatty, um, and and that makes them almost translucent. Light almost passes through passes through them, and that's one reason that that uh, locals call them a couple of names for them. One is the angel fish, um, and it's that sort of glow that they pick up from from catching the light. Also, they swim up and down in the water column instead of instead of horizontally, and so they you know they almost pose like an angel um, with their, their, their fins out to the side. Um, and um, the other name for them is, is um, the candlefish, and that is maybe in part also because of the glow, but also because people used to catch them and use them for their oil, because they were so oily, uh, for, for lanterns and, and for, for medicinal purposes. Um, and they also give birth to live young, which is highly unusual among fish, and they can swim throughout the water column at, you know, at every level of, of density and pressure in the water. Um, and so that also is, is quite unusual. Most species um, in any aquatic system are adapted to a fairly narrow range of, of, uh, of water pressure. Um, the Golomyanka can live at the top and at the bottom, and that's a difference of, of you know, a thousand and a half meters and a tremendous amount of, of pressure. So it's really an amazingly adapted yeah, there's no other fish in the world that can dive so deep in fresh water because there's no other lake that right. goes as deep. Right. You said it's over a mile deep or something? Yeah, it's over a mile deep, um, and yeah. it's about uh, 400 meters deeper than the next nearest uh, lake, which is actually a similar kind of lake in East Africa. The, 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 the East African Great Lakes are formed by a similar geologic process. So in some ways they're twins, but they're they're shallower, but also because they're, they're equatorial, they're warm weather, and so just because of the physics of water, um, they're stratified. So there's oxygen in the top 400 meters or so, but below that they're dead. Um, because well, that you, spent, you spend much time telling us how one of the secrets of Baikal is its coldness. Right. Right. And that, that has to do, um, again, with, with the, the, the strange properties of water and, and how it expands and contracts at different temperatures. Um, and because of that, through the, site, the season cycles, in, in the northern, you know, fairly far northern hemisphere, uh, the water turns over in the lake um, a couple of times a year, um, and so it, it, you know, the temperature uh, hits 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the maximum density of water, uh, and it becomes heaviest and it starts to fall and it churns the whole system, um, and of course that happens in the spring and in the fall, um, and that brings oxygen with it as 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 the water sinks. Um, it also brings, uh, you know, creatures, zooplankton, and other things with it. Um, so it's it's one of the, the, the cold is one of the things that really defines uh, the ecological processes that go on in this lake. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back to talk about the bicol seals after this break. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking Lake Baikal. Troubles and Solutions in the Sacred Sea. And my guest is Peter Thompson, environmental editor, environment editor at the public radio program, The World. And Peter's been talking about the complex ecosystem that's dependent on cold water, and he read to us about diving deep in the water. So, let's, Peter, let's, let's have another reading. Um, if, on Chapter 18, you start connecting the dots of the different uh, members of the ecosystem and what kind of impact that has. Yeah, and this is coming out of a long section um, on the, the contemporary pollution problems uh, confronting the lake. And, and in, in spite of what I said earlier about it still being incredibly clean, um, it has some very serious pollution problems confronting it. There's, there's, a, there's a very large industrial area that is upwind and a whole lot of uh, airborne pollutants are carried down into the lake from that. And then there's a major river that flows into it that carries a lot out of, uh, out of big cities to the east. And then there's stuff that just comes out of the global atmosphere that's carried from, from thousands of miles away. Um, and, and there's a big debate in Russia, uh, even among scientists, about how significant this is. And I spend a lot of uh, the last part of the book exploring, exploring some of that. And one, one of the mysteries is, you know, if all this stuff is going in, how come the water is still so apparently clean? And, um, and so then I spend one chapter... Uh, uh, visiting with a scientist who is helping to explain that, um, and the chapter uh, sort of starts out asking a few, a few rhetorical questions coming off the previous bit, and then and then continues like this: Who doesn't want to believe that there are still a few scraps of Earth left with the power to take the worst that humans can throw at them and turn it into nothing at all? Like I said, that's one of the reasons I came here to witness the Great Baikal's awesome act, and the illusion is easy to get sucked into because here's the thing. 
It's not just smoke and mirrors and nationalistic, risky hype. It's largely true. Despite decades of hefty daily doses of contaminants from the Angara River Industrial Corridor, the Selangar River, the Baikalf paper mill, and other sources, there's been little discernible change in the overall chemistry of the lake. The vast majority of Baikal's 23 quadrillion liters of water remain as pure as just about any on Earth. It seems that something remarkable really is going on here. And then I'll skip down a paragraph. So how does the great Baikal pull off this impressive sleight of hand? Well, if you've read this book from the beginning, you might already have picked up on Baikal's secret. Epichura baikalensis, the lake's unique and ubiquitous miniature shrimp, is the hidden compartment into which the great Baikal slips its disappearing pollution. Epichura, as we've heard, are filter feeders, animals that strain tiny bits of food out of the water. There are lots of kind of filter feeders in the world, and there are hundreds here in Baikal alone. But when it comes to the disappearing pollution trick, the only ones that really matter are the lake's shrimpy little shrimp. Think of every epichura as a tiny vacuum cleaner, about the size of a poppy seed, sucking algae, bacteria, and little scraps of debris from decomposing plants and animals into its little filter bag. And along with them, there it is, tiny specks of pollution that these things have picked up from the water. By itself, the impact of each one of these creatures in the lake is infinitesimally small, but together, their impact is enormous because there are just so damn many of them, as many as 3 million below every square meter of Baikal's 31 billion square meters of surface area. You do the math. The zillions of Epichura trawling Baikal at any one time are like a vast armada of aquatic vacuum cleaners, filtering Baikal's water with extraordinary efficiency. So is that the end of the tale? They just suck up all the pollution and... Well, we live happily ever after. If, if only it were, um, and this is this is where uh, it gets complicated, but but really not so complicated if uh, you know if you know much about the way aquatic systems work um, and this process called bioaccumulation, and it's something that Rachel Carson first really brought into the public consciousness 50 years ago, um, but which a, a lot of people still don't understand, and uh, and is it, it seems to be almost completely unheard of uh, in Russia, even among Russian scientists. Basically, uh, when these small creatures absorb uh, these pollutants from the water, they get eaten by other creatures, and the pollution gets passed on to those, and then those get eaten by other creatures, and it goes on up the food chain. And at each level in the, in the food chain, the concentrations of those materials get concentrated, by, get magnified by, by an order of magnitude, 10 times at least at each, at each one of those trophic levels, they call them. So by the time you get up through the food chain, you've got pollutants, uh, organochlorine, uh, things like PCBs, um, dioxin, other things, uh, at levels which are far beyond what's, what's safe for, for humans to eat um, and, and probably uh, is causing real problems higher up in the, in, the, in the ecosystem. You get to the top of the food chain and um, you've got people, of course. Uh, people eat the fish. Um, which have eaten the things, which have eaten the epichura, and uh, they are picking up um, these, these contaminants in, in very unhealthy amounts, and people eat a, a lot of fish. Not the golemianca we spoke of earlier, but another fish called omul, which is a, a sort of a trout, and it's, it's almost the, the, the local dish. You have it at every single meal. Um, and then uh, in addition to humans at the top of the food chain, there are these seals that I mentioned earlier. They are the world's only freshwater seal, um, and uh, nobody quite knows how they got there, but they probably came up the, the, the Angara and Yenisei River system from the Arctic Ocean. They're very closely related to Arctic ring seals. 
maybe a million years ago. Um, and and uh, the seals, um, many of them have been found to have extremely elevated levels of organochlorine pollution, um, as high or at least in the same range as, as animals in, in much more polluted parts of the world, like the Baltic Sea, which is in basically an industrial corridor. Um, and that's really frightening, and there have been uh, several uh, large die-offs of seals over the last 20 years or so, um, and nobody can say for sure, but they're fairly certain that, uh, that these chemicals are, are affecting the seals uh, in, in, in pretty serious ways, including perhaps immune system problems, reproductive problems, and the like. Yeah, bad news for seals. Yeah. Peter, a real strength to your book is the crux of the environmental challenge. You identify beneath the arguments of what the lake can and cannot cope with, there are basic understandings or core beliefs that make addressing the environmental problems difficult. It's like a clash of two different fundamental faiths. Yeah. Can you tell us about how it's a question of faith and mirages and miracles that so differentiates the, the people trying to save the Baikal? Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is, this is of course, you know, one of the things that you constantly run into in, in reporting on environmental issues is, is uh, you know, science can't tell you everything, first of all, even if you're looking at the same science and you're making, the, you know, you're, you're believing the same things uh, on the basis of that science, um, you then have to decide, well, you know, how do you act on that science? But even in this place, uh, even scientists are looking at the same science and they're not, uh, they're not uh, taking the same lessons from it. There are people who totally dismiss this, this question of bioaccumulation and contamination in the food chain. Um, and they say that Baikal is, is totally fine. Um, and, uh, and there are others who are, are, are extremely worried about it, not just the, 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 the contaminants problem, but also um, changes in the very, very subtle changes in the chemistry of the water and, uh, and the temperature due to climate change. Um, and it, it seemed that it really, in some ways, came down to what you want believe, not, uh, not necessarily what the facts tell you, but what facts you choose to, to, to believe. And um, you know, I got very, very lucky in, in, in uh, reporting this story, and one of the amazingly <laughs> unpredictable things that happened was I went to this tiny village in the lake that you can only reach by boat um, and met these two scientists who worked side by side uh, in two separate little institutes um, that, that looked more like... like uh, fishing cabins than, than research institutes. Um, and they have diametrically opposed uh, visions of, of what Baikal uh, is and what it's capable of and, and what the future of the lake looks like. And I, I call them Dr. Hope and Dr. Despair. And they even wore these, these, these sort of worldviews on their, their physical selves and their bodies and their faces. It was just like something out of central casting that I would never have believed if I hadn't seen it and interviewed them and spent time with them and written it myself. It was just an incredible uh, stroke of luck that I got that, these sort of human representations of these two diametrically opposed views of, of the lake. And it really does, for some people, it, it's, a, it's just a matter of faith. And where do you put your faith? You put your faith in the power of nature uh, as the dominant force that can overcome all, uh, you know, all that, that humans can throw at it. Or do you put your faith in in, uh, in what science tells you about uh, about what these processes uh, are doing to the lake and its inhabitants, and then you know uh, ultimately to us. Um, well, so, the former has a long history to it. I mean, that's sure. been true for a long time, and yeah, 
Absolutely, and in some ways, I mean, I write about this also. I mean, people's attitude toward Baikal is similar to their attitude toward Siberia in general, which in turn is similar to our attitude here in the U.S. about our frontier, first the American West and now Alaska, that it's limitless, that no matter how much damage you do to it, you can never possibly exhaust it because it's so big, it's so vast, and it's so strong that uh, it's... It, it, it can take anything you can throw at it. So there's a real analogy there between between uh, the experience in Siberia and and Baikal and our own experience. And of course, you know, we've learned some lessons here in the U.S. that have told us that that is basically a fallacy. They're still grappling with those lessons. Well, I mean, you know, obviously many people here in the U.S. still don't believe that, and they still do believe that, uh, you know, you can you can dig and drill and dump and uh, and cut. And uh, that ultimately everything will be fine. Um, but well, Peter, this is why you know you're on with the Ocean River Institute is because these stories need to be told. We have the Cook Inlet beluga whales in Alaska that um, are suffering not because of overhunting, but because, like you said, the environment is so large that Alaskans felt they could throw anything at it. Right. And so you have the, you know so we need people to rally for for protecting these animals, despite what the evidence is. Right. Uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. Peter, thank you so much for uh, well, telling us about Lake Baikal. Oh, I'm really happy to. Thanks so much for asking, Rob. Really appreciate it. After this break, we'll be with Mike Dunmeyer, and we'll hear about what's happening in uh, for Ocean Champions in Washington. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Ready to lift your spirit? Join Karen Tatanich every week for Spirit Connections. Karen will share with you the power of energy work. It can get you through the good times and the tough times. Karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy. There are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet. You'll learn about the power of spirit at home, at work, and at play. Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network.
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're uh, we're back with Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions. Hi, Mike. How are you? Fabulous, Rob. How are you doing today? Really good. We're having an interesting show talking about Lake Baikal and Peter Thompson's visit there. And it's interesting the corollaries between what they're dealing with, which are environmental problems that aren't really manifest enough so that people who aren't doing the science can understand what the problem is. And they have similar problems to us in that they have problems with uh, algal blooms along the shore where there's a lot of nutrient loading happening, and yet they're in denial about what that's about. And mm. there, there's various, you know, issues. And like us, they're, they're like, why have to do, why study, you know, lake policy, ocean policy, if there's no real problem? And yet those who understand the problem are saying, oh, no, we've got to do this stuff. So it, it just reminds me of the kinds of work that Ocean Champions has been doing in Washington to rally people for um, complex issues like red tide and nutrient loading and so forth. And uh, uh, you know, yeah. you're, you're you're right that uh, the the challenge is that unless people, you know, writ large feel directly impacted by something, it's tough to get them to pay attention. But uh, the reality is that these things, even a, uh, a seemingly under-the-radar thing like harmful algal blooms, uh, really are affecting people already in terms of, of closing fisheries and, and killing jobs and making people sick and, you know, long-term harming the, uh, the environment that they need to, uh, to, uh, to, to rebuild fisheries because these coral areas that are destroyed by the HABs are critical nurseries. So... Um, it, it's really trying to get that connection in people's heads so that they do realize it's impacting them before it's too late. Yeah, and it's too bad that we have to be such experts. You know, <laughs> we like to rely on the, the federal food agencies to make sure our food is clean, and yet we can't rely on federal agencies to just quietly make sure that our environments are clean. We have to, you know, hold their feet to the fires. And, indeed, indeed. Uh, so it's it's now um, after the. It's the Wednesday after, well, it's a, week, it's a little over a week since uh, the Tuesday elections. Um, how is that uh, affecting your work at, with Ocean Champions on the Hill? Or? Well, um, you know, I guess uh, first and foremost, in, in terms of uh, Ocean Champions helping to elect the good ocean guys that are out there, um, Election Day, while a very challenging day overall was actually a pretty good day for our candidates. We, uh, we went 22 and 4, so 22 of our endorsed candidates won and only 4 lost. Uh, if you add in our work in the primary, we overall were, were 23 wins and, and 7 losses, and that included being able to successfully defeat Ocean Enemy number 1 Richard Pombo again. So in, in general, uh, our Ocean Champions performed well, which means that you know, we're sending back uh, a number of good ocean people uh, who are willing to take action and stand up and do the right things. Um, you know, the, the two downsides to this uh, that, that we, you know, will work through, one is that we did, of those four losses, there were a couple really tough ones in there that we cared very much about, and we've spoken about quite a bit on this show. For example, um, Frank Craddeville in Maryland's first House District uh, took a tough defeat against uh, a guy, uh, Andy Harris, who would appear... 
to be destined to become another Pombo uh, once he starts actually doing his work at the federal level. So somebody will have to watch closely. And just unfortunately, it was one of those situations where Mr. Craddeville has a historically very conservative district. He was able to make it in on a wave, and the return wave uh, made it impossible for him to stay, even though he did fine work for the district and incredible work for the oceans. Um, and then Paul Hodes, uh, the Senate candidate in New Hampshire, who we, we believed in very strongly. We know he would have been a, a tremendous ocean champion in the Senate. Unfortunately, again, couldn't overcome the wave in, in New Hampshire. Um, so two tough defeats. Um, you know, but, uh, but by and large, you know, the great majority of our champions made it in, and we feel great about that. And uh, the question now becomes, uh, what will the political environment be that they find themselves in when they return for the 112th Congress? Yes. So before they come to the 112th, we have a, a lame duck period. A lame... <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, is that the right word for it, or...? <laughs> The uh, the lame duck, the, uh, the 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 lame dolphin. I don't know, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there there we certainly um, you know as as we look at things, we've got two months left in in the 111th Congress, and and since you know you've got essentially the you know many members who lost for serving out the final two months of their term, it's referred to as a lame duck session, uh, and we still have an opportunity to get a few things done here before we move into the 112th Congress, and. Uh, you know, maybe we can talk about that in a in a bit. Um, I, we've been able to pass uh, a number of of, of uh, strong bills through the House, and this really lame duck session becomes about focusing our energies at the Senate, um, which still has a Democratic majority, so all the chairmanships are the same. Um, but there's a emboldened Republican minority that may or may not want to play ball. Uh, in terms of moving these these uh, pieces of legislation that that have, the House has delivered over to them, so we'll you know, we can chat about that in a bit. I, I would say the the one thing that we need to take stock of still in the 112th Congress and, and plan for will be that the change in committee chairmanships uh, on the right. House side with the Republicans taking over. Because as we talk about, we endorsed uh, four uh, really good ocean uh, champions on the Republican side in the House. Um, there are good ocean Republicans, and we will find uh, more of them. There will be opportunities to work with them, and because we are bipartisan, we will be able to act on those opportunities. The challenge is that there are key members in Republican leadership who, you know, their past indicates that they are, they are in fact, you know, the farthest thing removed from ocean champions, and their control of the committees makes them particularly powerful since they will be the ones determining what issues are heard by those committees, what issues get out of those committees and go to the floor. It's, it's a very powerful uh, position. And you look at some of these guys who are the likely chairman, like Joe Barton, uh, who is probably going to be the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, is the guy who famously apologized to, to BP in the hearing You know, for... Oh, my gosh, that's right. He's out. the one who apologized to BP. Yeah, yeah and, and, and not surprisingly, he has hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of donations from big oil in his past. Um, likewise, uh, Ralph Hall, uh, who will likely be the chair of the Science and Technology Committee, uh, also, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in donations from oil and gas. He's been a you know very pro oil gas kind of a guy, and uh, he also was the one who whipped, tried to lead a whip against our harmful algal bloom bill just for partisan purposes. Um, it was it was successful in beating it one time, but we were able to bring it back and still pass it over top of that. 
with a second effort, but again, you know, someone who kind of showed himself to be in favor of toxic algae, you would think is not going to be your strongest ocean champion. Um, and then Doc Luckily, Hayes, that bill is through the House, and so it's gone to the Senate, I guess. Indeed, indeed. We, we were able to get past that maneuver. Um, and then Doc Hastings is the likely uh, chair of the Natural Resources Committee, and he's already put out a missive that essentially says we need to, you know, have an... Uh, and all of the above energy policy and really look to encourage more offshore drilling and more drilling in, in, in all areas. And uh, I think you'll see more coal. Uh, and uh, he's already kind of put a stake in the sand against marine spatial planning, calling it an irrational ocean zoning uh, scheme. So, you know, we would anticipate that there are going to be challenges and threats, and we're going to have to play some defense here. But like I said, there will also be opportunities in the 112th Congress, and we will find them, and we are uniquely positioned uh, to be able to act on them. So it'll just be a question of, of seeking those out, uh, working with our, our very good friends on both sides of the aisle and, and trying to make good things happen. Yeah, we lost a number of uh, congressmen from the Natural Resources Committee. You mentioned you know, Frank Craddaville and Carol Shea Porter up in New Hampshire. and um, So... Last year, or this year, you know, there's 29 Democrats and 20 Republicans. Uh, that'll shift next year, so it's a majority Republicans, won't it? Uh, indeed. And, uh, you know, the, it's, it's interesting. The Natural Resources Committee has always been a challenge. It usually gets uh, filled, really, from both parties, Democrats and Republicans, by people that have uh, districts that are more interested in extraction. Um, and so getting conservationists, on the Natural Resources Committee has always been a challenge. Uh, you know, I think that we, you know, we're going to have to take stock of who winds up there the next time, but it will be a Republican majority. We would hope that some of those Republicans would be some of the good ocean people that, uh, that we know and love, and that we get stronger Democrats uh, on that as well, uh, even though we'll have a, a smaller number of Dems overall. So we will see. Um, we know the chairman, though, is, is, uh, is going to be a challenge to begin with. Absolutely, Doc Hastings from Washington. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, Ed Markey is still with us, and he'll be a senior member, a Democrat. Yeah, you know, and, and that'll be interesting. I'd, I'd seen some scuttlebutt that he wants to go back to um, uh, telecom and do some more work there, so I don't know if that will be uh, in lieu of service on the Natural Resources Committee. I would hope not because uh, he is, you know, in addition to being, you know, really one of the strongest uh, natural, you know, just say generally conservation guys you're going to find out there, he is uh, completely unafraid to, to get into the middle of some very nasty uh, tangles. You see, he is still the guy holding BP's feet to the fire and not taking any of the, uh, the, 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 the kind of sweep it under the rug kinds of comments that are coming over, not letting that pass and continues to be out in front on that. And that's how he is on all the issues that he's passionate about including oceans. So. Yeah, he's been on natural resources for 34 years, and he's been on energy and commerce for 34 years. And so he likes to say he's been doing this stuff for 68 years. <laughs> 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 he is sharp. <laughs> we do enjoy him. <laughs> he probably will want to gang on the new committee, you know, on top of that, just so he gets the maximum number of years to add up or something. <laughs> he does have six Ph.D. scientists on his staff which enabled his office to uh, inform the EPA how to handle the uh, uh, dispersant chemicals that they were trying to manage that was being sprayed onto the Gulf oil spill and stuff. 
Yeah, he is. So, um, uh, yeah. And, and likewise has been a leading voice uh, on the issue of ocean acidification, which is a huge problem. Right. Mike, I have to inter- interrupt you. We'll be back with Mike Dunmeyer after the break. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're talking with Mike Dunmeyer of Ocean Champions. Mike, um, coming out of this election on Tuesday, uh, what is Ocean Champions focusing on right now between now and the end of the year? Well, as you alluded to on the, in the prior segment, we've got uh, about two months of legislative time left uh, to try and, and, and close out and, and, and secure some more wins in the ocean policy priorities that we had for the 111th Congress. So this is the lame duck uh, session, as, as you, you know, said to me before, Rob. You know, you, it always saddens you to think about all those ducks walking around Washington D.C. in crutches, and it certainly makes it harder to get to work in the morning because they clog up the uh, the arteries. But uh, once you get there, there's still lots of good ocean things that you can do. Um, you know, we were able to uh, get our harmful algal bloom and hypoxia and dead zone uh, bill passed in the House, and it is out of committee in the Senate. And uh, what we need to do is, is get it to the floor and pass it there. It's a very good bill that offers an opportunity to, to really start to stem the, 
the tide of, of this growing threat to jobs, to human health, and to marine ecosystems that are, that are toxic algal blooms. Um, we have some good news on that right now. It, it, uh, it, it, we've been told that it is attached to uh, an omnibus of land and water bills, and in fact it is being openly discussed as one of the key anchors of that package because it enjoys bipartisan support, which is a really great thing to have these days. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is that if that lands and water package is going to move, then HABs can get done. Um, the question becomes the environment. Uh, you know, there have been some indications that uh, an emboldened Republican minority uh, with Mitch McConnell uh, kind of leading the way would really try to stall uh, and, and not let anything pass that could be viewed as a, a victory for the Democrats. But... Uh, you know, what is coming out of the election, there's a lot of chatter uh, suggesting that uh, uh, the Republicans are, are aware that if they obstruct at this point, they could, they could you know, lose some of the favor that they gained through the election and, you know, potentially in two years be, be tossed back out. And they seem to be cognizant of that and potentially more willing to play. And we've seen four Republicans indicate some support for this package. Uh, and uh, you know, if you get a couple more, then that's going to be a groundswell to be able to move it, and, uh, and we will be working closely with Majority Leader Reid to try and get that done. Um, so you know, some possible good news. And the other thing that's going on is with all of the potential negativity surrounding the concept of earmarks going into the 112th Congress, some, mm. uh, some senators might want to try and get a few things done to bring some money back home to their districts now uh, before they get into that, that uh, shouting match next year. So, and again... Uh, the land's water package may include a couple of those bills that could that could make it enticing for people to to want to please their constituents. So we, yeah, because you can blame the Democratic-controlled Congress for all those earmarks that go through now. <laughs> yeah, that would be one way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, so I, so there there's some good possibilities there. Um, the other thing that we had been working on long and hard last year was to obtain an appropriation uh, to support the administration's budget request to fund. Uh, an innovative fisheries management framework called Catch Shares, which a- applies a market-based solution that aligns uh, the economic interests of the fishermen with the conservation interests of the of, you know, long-term interests of the fishery. And it's had a great history of success here in the U.S. and internationally. And this is money to fund the infrastructure for fisheries where the councils have already said they want to adopt catch shares and this would give them an opportunity to be successful with that framework. And a number of these, like the Pacific groundfish fishery, are, uh, are, are fisheries that are really near cratering and they need uh, an innovative, strong solution to, to help them. So uh, this appropriation was in really good shape um, uh, you know, coming into the election. There is certainly a, a budget-cutting uh, ethos that is out there, but uh, we remain uh, uh, confident that we can deliver the right appropriation to have a, you know, have a chance to, to really grow and, and restore these threatened fisheries through this innovative program. So um, we'll continue to work that issue as well, and that'll probably carry into the 112th Congress because they won't finish the appropriation until next year. But again, we'll, we'll continue to protect what we believe exists today, which would be a strong win. Um, and then the, the last piece, Rob, uh, something that you care very much about, uh, we were working with our champions uh, a couple months ago in response to the BP oil spill to help pass the, the CLEAR Act 
in the House, which included the nation's first ocean conservation uh, fund. And uh, on the Senate side, uh, one of our champions, Senator Whitehouse, has introduced the National Endowment for the Oceans, which is a very similar piece of, of legislation to that uh, House-side ocean conservation fund, but it, is, it would establish using revenues from uh, offshore energy uh, development, be it you know, oil or uh, renewable energy, uh, to strip a piece of that aside and create what could be about a billion-dollar-a-year fund to uh, to apply to ocean conservation projects and, and very good work to help restore the health of, of coastal ecosystems. Uh, and uh, that bill, surprisingly, has decent bipartisan support. And uh, it may not get done this year, but there is there is a shot, and there has there is right now a. Uh, uh, a little bit of work going on to see if that National Endowment for the Oceans could be attached to that lands water bill, um, that lands water omnibus that I spoke of earlier. And again, if that package generally has good support and can move and NEO can get on it, then that would that would bode well. Like I said, this, we're kind of in Hail Mary land, I think, with that particular uh, with that particular bill. But there is a shot, and that's all you can ask for at this point. Well. It's a huge tribute to Ocean Champions for working uh, reluctant, you know, people who are reluctant to be considered being interested in environmental issues to, you know, support those, this bill and the, and the HABS bill. And also, um, both, neither of these bills are regulatory bills. They are both, you know, the HABS bill is a research bill with only, you know, 40 some odd million. And uh, the, the other one, the uh, National Endowment for the Ocean, is going to enable states to receive, coastal states to receive funds and regional groups, including non-coastal states, to apply for funds and also non-government groups to apply. So it, it looks like um, your efforts are coming together. Oh, thanks. Uh, you know, there, there's been a lot of momentum, and, and you know, we, uh, we, we feel like we've moved the ball an incredible distance uh, in getting these things through the House. Uh, and, of course, the, the compliment goes to our champions who have done so much to push this along, but we've done everything that we can to support them and try and connect the dots. Um, and, yeah, there's a very good chance of, of starting to get some of these things in through the Senate. And if we, if we were able to get a couple more of them in, it really would be a phenomenal year for Oceans. Uh, there are a couple other things we've already gotten done. Um, so uh, we would come away feeling pretty good. And, uh, you know, just as a, as a quick aside, that you know, part of this is, is – is, is due a bit to the, the approach we take, where instead of trying to impose, uh, you know, our, uh, you know, developed in the garage perfect solution to all these problems, we reverse engineer. We go to the Hill and start with the committee staffers and the members and figure out what they believe they can get done and then work with that as the starting point uh, because that gives you your best shot versus trying to impose a solution upon them. Um, you, know, you start with what they will support and go from there. Uh, and the multi-prong enables you to, you know, move forward on those that people are ready to move forward on. And, for example, the cat share has got vehement people like Massachusetts Barney Frank speaking against, you know, any kind of thing that has to do with fishermen as being a social justice taking. And so it becomes a very hot political potato type thing that, um, you know, may not be at a time to... I mean that has yeah we work on that but we don't have to sacrifice the others for for lack of movement on this particular important uh, fishing bill that is being championed by senators like 
Mark Begich from Alaska, who has seen that bill save the halibut fishery and, and really be a help for that. And uh, so that kind of education, and that's what you guys do too, is I see you going into the senators and congressmen's offices explaining, you know, yeah, it doesn't sound right, but here's how it works. And so, you know, um, there's been a lot of education from uh, fishing community senators and congressmen around this stuff. And that's, you know, a lot of times what happens is you need to educate their constituents so that they are safe and covered to make a move supporting this because sometimes it's misinformation at the constituent level that puts these members in the position to have to go against something that could actually help them. And what we found, for example, on catch shares is that getting fishermen that have successfully gone through a catch shares adaptation to talk to other fishermen is the best approach. Um, So to be able to deliver uh, uh, fishermen that are, are, are... in successful catch shares programs to go and talk to, for example, you know, New England fishermen that might have concerns or, or, or great anxiety about it and let them know their personal experience. Because at the end of the day, we are not of that community. We're not necessarily the trusted advisor, but their peers in the fishing community are. That's right. Mike Dunmire, thank you for finishing up this episode of Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Uh, indeed, always a pleasure. Well, we'll talk to you next time, Mike. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ocean River Shields of Achilles. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.